Hey everyone, welcome back to the Prison Counts podcast where we take you inside the criminal justice system and what it's like to live life in prison. I'm your host, Ryan Perkson, here as always with my good friend and co-host, Dave Dowling. Dave, how you doing? All's well today, buddy. Uh, I'm really excited about this week's guest. It's a, a former probation and parole officer. She worked in probation and parole for a number of years and now she doesn't so she can talk speak freely you know and openly so she doesn't have to hold anything back out of fear of retribution from the powers that be or what have you but she's a real interesting person a really intelligent and articulate girl and i'm really happy to have her on awesome yeah i'm i'm really excited about this as well that's a side of the criminal justice system i haven't seen or witnessed really myself, but I've heard some horror stories. I know there's some people in that field that really care and some people that really don't care. So uh, we're going to get the inside scoop. Let's go ahead and bring in Ziada. All right, we got Ziada here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So you're a probation and parole officer. I don't know much about that. Can you kind of tell us what's your job? What does that entail? So I was a probation and parole officer up until about a month ago. Um, I worked for the state of Missouri Division of Probation and Parole for three and a half years. My job consisted of maintaining a caseload of about 30 to 40 um, probationers and parolees. Um, It was a lot of just helping um, guide them um, towards resources and helping them find a job and make sure that they weren't using drugs and that they weren't committing crimes and things like that. 30 to 40, Good deal. that's a pretty large caseload. It seems like a lot I, At the end, I had a specialized caseload of um, domestic violence offenders. That's what I did for probably the last year or so that I, I was there. So domestic violence, is that like something, I mean, do you choose to work with domestic violence like where you're you're forced to work with primarily them and did you like that that specific area or how's that work so when you first start you have what they call a primary caseload it's just kind of a a whole bunch of um offenses it's not really specific to one thing um it varies from possessions of controlled substances to assaults and um i had parolees that were on for murder and um, things like that. So it's kind of a catch-all primary is. Um, I I then volunteered to take on a specialized caseload because that was kind of my goal there. I didn't want to just stick to primary cases. I wanted to do something more specialized. And so I volunteered to take over the domestic violence caseload. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. You volunteered to do it. Do you feel like you're able to help those people more? Is that why you wanted to volunteer for that? Or Yeah. So I thought that they were very interesting. Um, that was one of the caseloads that I wanted as well. I wanted the sex offender caseload also, but somebody was already managing that. I just think that violent offenders are very interesting the way that they work, especially domestic violence offenders. I found them to be interesting. I wanted the challenge of working with them. So that's kind of why I volunteered for that. What an incredible challenge that would be, I would think. Uh, you know, I mean, is, is it scary at all? I, I feel like I'd be a little bit concerned doing that. No, job. I was I was never really scared. I mean, there might have been like one or two times where I felt a little uneasy, but I was never actually scared. 
One thing I noticed over the years meeting different kinds of offenders when I was in prison and whatnot is a lot of times people that are in prison are in trouble for domestic violence or sexual abuse, sexual crimes, tend to seem to feel like they're not actually criminals. Like mm-hmm. they're different than someone who stole something or robbed something or killed something. They seem to think they're not really criminals. You know, I've noticed that about them. You know, is that something you ever noticed? Yes. There's a lot of minimizing in domestic violence. There's a lot of minimizing. They don't take, typically, they don't take accountability for their actions, for the things that they did. Sometimes they'll just outright say that they didn't do it. Um, there's just absolutely no responsibility taken most of the time. Some people though do regret what they did. Um, they do regret what happened and they are working to kind of move on past that and change their lives. I also, one of the things that I found interesting with these, um, offenders was they usually had a lot of trauma from childhood. They did not come from stable households. They were abused as children. Um, but some people, um, also had substance abuse kind of induced violence. There was a lot of um, people who dealt with alcoholism issues that would drink and then beat up on their wives or their girlfriends. It was kind of a gamut of of issues that people had that led them to that lifestyle. I wonder, so how much contact did you have uh, with these individuals, uh, especially the domestic abuse? And did you feel like with that time you were able to actually assist them and help them? And did you feel like they were going to be better or repeat offenders? How did you feel about that? So before COVID, we were mostly meeting our offenders in our offices. We would do home visits where they never really had to be at their home. You just kind of had to stop by and drop off a card at their door, which I never really understood the point of that. I always wanted to have more contact to be more involved in their lives. Um, And then after COVID, they wanted us to go out into the community more, be more visible to the public and to meet with our offenders wherever they were. I met with my homeless offenders on street corners. I went to their jobs. I, I went to their homes. Um, I've, I've met with people, a lot of places, parks. At one point I met a guy in like a horse stable thing. It, yeah. He was living <laughs> on, he was living on someone's property in like a shed. I don't know if the person knew that he was living there, but there was also a pony. It was, huh. yeah. Did yeah. you feel like you were able to help them more like being in that environment? Yes. I got to see more aspects of their lives. Um, it wasn't just that face-to-face that we would get in the office, I got to go meet their coworkers, you know, meet whoever was living in their house, see what their living conditions were. Yeah. I, I did feel like I was able to help them more because I knew more of what was actually going on in their life instead of just what they were telling me. And do you feel like they're the people who probably want more help as well? Oh yeah. They want all the help. They want all the resources. They want everything and they will take advantage of it, which is great. I was pretty uh, lucky, really. I come out to a ton of support, you know. I came out straight to this house, you know, with my girl and with some money. And, you know, I have a ton of family, friends, all kinds of stuff. So I had a lot going for me coming out, you know, and I know that. So I know guys who have come out with nothing 
and they struggle a lot harder. They have to move into neighborhoods mm-hmm. that are rough. I moved into this neighborhood, which is a pretty nice neighborhood, you know. And, you know, some people didn't get that. I'm grateful that I did, you know, because it's helped me, you know, because no one in this house would put up with those kind of shenanigans. I'll tell you that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> wouldn't be here long if I went back to my old lifestyle, I promise, you know. And Dana, who's my fiance, she, uh, she knows me since we were 14 years old, you mm-hmm. know, so she knows everything about me. It's not like she, I met her as a pen pal or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we've been friends for a long, long time, you know, but I, I know that's harder for some people to come out, especially when you, they get into relationships with people. And generally, they gravitate to relationships to other people that have the same kind of problems as they have. And then they feed off each mm-hmm. other, you know, and it's kind of dangerous you know, for a parolee to get into a relationship with people they meet in like AA and NA meetings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hi, let's get together. I'm four days out of prison and you're 30 days clean. You know, that was one of my favorite things about the domestic violence case load was um, I basically the person had to sign the supervision agreement saying that I could be very involved in any relationships that they had. I could talk to their, you know, significant other and get any information I wanted. Um, that was really nice. I loved that. I loved being um, kind of in that aspect of their life. And um being able to talk to this, the significant other and make sure that they were okay and engaging in pro-social behavior and not just going to send this person back to prison. So that was always good. Yeah. My that sounds incredibly me. important. She'll tell on me in a heartbeat. Good. As <laughs> yeah. she should. <laughs> Dana will whoop you too. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, she's feisty. She put she's awesome. Yeah. Love she's Dana. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Dana's pretty cool. What a good person. Um, so that kind of, uh, in my mind, leads me to, I'm wondering, what is the biggest problem you see uh, people having when they're released? Is it finding work opportunities? Is it drugs? Is it, I mean, getting acclimated in general? What What do you see as the biggest difficulty for people coming out into the world again? It depends. It, uh, it depends on a lot of things. Um, some of the things that we kind of quantify when people come out is do they have support from family? That's a huge thing. If they don't have a single soul on this planet and they're going down to the release center, sometimes the prison will release people as homeless. They won't even have a home plan, which makes it so difficult to supervise them. They don't have a phone. They don't have anything, (laughs) no way to communicate with them. Sometimes they'll just show up and it's like, okay, well, great. I'm glad you made it. Some, and then they'll, you know, set up camp outside of a White Castle or and then they have mental health issues. I mean, it's a, it's a whole mess when people are released homeless and the prison does do that. Um, I haven't had one. Of, I didn't have one of those in a while, but they do do that. So that's an issue when they don't have support. Other times they'll come out. They haven't gotten the proper substance abuse treatment um, or they'll just have they'll have antisocial attitudes is what we call them. Just, you know, thing, just a negative outlook on life. They don't know anything about then criminal behavior. They just have never been exposed to anything pro-social. And that's really hard. Those cases are really hard where the people just are not willing to engage in any type of change to their life. They just kind of want to continue doing what they're doing. That's hard. I'm sure you have to deal with people that are also of limited intelligence or have mental health problems, limited education. 
things like that. You mentioned something in your notes before we started about what you thought the job was going to be and what the job actually was. So what I thought the job was going to be, when I was in school, I focused a lot on community supervision. It was something I was passionate about. I was passionate about rehabilitation generally. Um, I believed in it very strongly when I was in school. Um, So that was what I wanted to do going in. I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people change their lives. And what I noticed was that my hands were tied in a lot of situations. There were a lot of things that I couldn't change about people's circumstances and that people just weren't willing to change themselves. So it, I I sometimes felt like I was a glorified babysitter. I didn't feel like I was actually making an impact. I felt like I was pushing paper a lot and writing a lot of reports and things that just didn't need to be done when I need to be focusing on helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, in their day-to-day lives. So that was one thing that was disappointing to me was that my hands were tied in a lot of situations. And did you feel like once they changed that after COVID, how you were saying they changed to where you could go and be in the community with them? Do you feel like that you were less of, or felt like less of a glorified babysitter at that point? Yeah, I did. That was that was one of the best things that I ever experienced there, honestly, awesome. was the ability to go and interact with people more. That was my favorite thing. I, I Seriously, I loved meeting with people on street corners. And literally, I mean, that's just where they were. They didn't have a home. They That's where we met. We just stood there. I stood there in my bulletproof vest with my, you know, badge emblem on it. And we stood there and we talked for 30 to 40 minutes. And that's where we did our office visit. It was great. It was seriously some of the best experiences I have ever had and will never forget. That is amazing. That's a, that's an incredible experience I would imagine. And did you go by yourself? Was there any backup? Did you have any safety like with you other than the bulletproof vest or how, how did that work? Yeah. So I, was by, after COVID, they let us go do home visits by ourselves, which was great because before you used to have to take somebody with you and it was just kind of a pain to have to leave what you're doing to go with your coworker to do their home visits. It was just a pain. But when they let us do them ourselves, I mean, it was great. I honestly did not feel unsafe. I felt fine. I knew my offenders and they, they teach us not to have, not to become complacent. Um, just for safety reasons. But when you know your offenders, um, you know, you kind of, it's common sense. If you know somebody's, you know, a little shady, they're unstable, you're not going to go meet with them by yourself in their basement. Right. You're going to meet with them somebody somewhere where it's public. Um, But yeah, no. And you also, you can become certified to carry a firearm, which I did, a firearm that you have to buy yourself. Um, so yeah. So if you want protection in that sense, it's like, uh, it's on you. (laughs) Yes, it is completely on you. What what other type of, uh, things would you have to purchase yourself for the job related? Yeah. So the firearm you had to buy, um, they provided the pepper spray and other stuff like that. The bulletproof vest. Do they give you those? Yeah, they provided that. Standard issue. That was provided. (laughs) It was a nice vest. Sometimes I miss it. Most of the time I don't know. (laughs) I had to give it back. (laughs) 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 Well, and a lot of times it was a pain for the clients, the vest, because 
before I started carrying a firearm, I did not have a vest. So I was just kind of a random person meeting with them. Um, nobody was able to tell that they were meeting with their PO. They could just oh, tell, yeah. you know, coworkers or whoever, hey, that's my friend. I'm just going to meet with them outside. But once I had the vest, it was like, oh, sometimes people would be like, can you put a jacket on? And I was like, sure. <laughs> I don't want you to get fired. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. It's like, they're like, oh, good thing it's winter time. Nobody will yeah. know. You got a big yeah. parka on. Okay. <laughs> Now, what's new to me about like nowadays compared to what it used to be when I was on probation back in the day as to now, it's like I meet my probation officer, my parole officer at the police station. Like, mm-hmm. I go meet her at the police station, which is great because her office is 25 miles away and the police station is like four blocks that way. You know, it's kind of cool, you know, for that reason. But every time I tell somebody, like, man, you got to go to the police station. Well, it's not that scary if you're not doing anything wrong. You know, right? yeah, nobody's yeah. looking for you. Police station's not that scary, you know. If you got a pocket full of stuff that's felonies and you got a illegal car and a you know, a warrant for your arrest, yeah, they can be kind of spooky. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I avoid those things like the plague. I don't know. Yeah, I bet. Um, <laughs> and that's a great kind of aspect of the post-COVID probation and parole era in Missouri. Um, the new director that they she's not really new anymore. She's been there for like four years, the director of the Department of Corrections. She's got more of a rehabilitative approach on things, but it's difficult to be completely rehabilitative in a state like Missouri where things are so conservative and people don't believe in rehabilitation, frankly. Um, And, you know, she's tried to implement a lot of great strategies and things, but it's it doesn't always end up working out. I feel like like it's supposed to because there is so much red tape from the people who don't believe in that stuff. Well, that's it. It's always back and forth. When we were at Jeff's city years ago, 15 years ago, we had a warrant, a warden who was pro program. Mm-hmm. So they gave us our own whole housing unit. We had a lot of uh, stuff that we could use. What do you call it? Um, I don't know, books, literature, all that yeah. type of stuff. We had it's resources in general. Yeah. yeah. Resources mm-hmm. in general. Where we could do things. Well, as soon as he left, he got actually promoted. A new one came in, didn't like any of that stuff, and started mm-hmm. taking it all back. And they got worse quick. It all yeah. up, making it less attractive of an option. Right. And actually targeting people who were known as program people, which I was one, you know, and, and starting to target them, you know. And it was it's crazy. Like, why are you targeting me for trying to make your job easier? I'm not acting out, you know. Mm-hmm. I wanted to change them, your life and do good. I mean, it was the only thing in my 10 years of incarceration that was available to help people become better and have a higher probability of success when they, when they were released. And like Dave said, as soon as he left, they, they started taking those programs and messing with the people that were in them that were trying to do good things that stayed out of trouble. It was, it was pretty sad to see. Yeah. But you know, those there's just no public support for that kind of stuff. So it's like these people who are in power, if they're not getting public support, then they're not right. going to be for that. They're not going to be for rehabilitation and programming when the public thinks that's a waste of taxpayer money to provide criminals, what they see as criminals um, with books and other things that they could use to better their lives. The There's just The sad part about that though, is that most of that, those resources actually came from Catholic charities. Mm-hmm. All that stuff, really, the the taxpayer actually didn't pay for it. It's just like when they see inmates with TVs and having cable TV. Oh, we don't want to pay for that. Well, you're not paying for that. Mm-hmm. The inmates actually do pay for their own TVs and the cable 
from the inmate canteen fund. So some of the stuff they see that people think they're paying for, you're not paying for. But the DOC started blocking Catholic charities from even being allowed to help us. Mm. Like, you can't even help anyone. Why? That's a great question. That's so unfortunate. Why would you not allow people to help you? Why can't anyone come in and see you? And a lot of it is, honestly, you know, there's some nasty people locked up in prison. and There's some nasty people working at them, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's the truth. You know, and I've met them, you know, and uh, it's going to be a very dangerous place because of that duplicity of staff and... You know, I mean, guys, everything is known amongst the inmates. People say, well, how would you know the person's coming? Like if you were in prison in one prison and you were coming to the next, well, we know you're going to be there before you even get there. Mm-hmm. They're like, how? Well, the staff tells us. They give us the paper. Of course they do. You know, somebody right. tells on you, you can go to a certain staff member and say, who's telling on me? And they'll tell you who's telling on you. You know what I mean? And it, it can be. You know, Ryan himself got targeted. And I'm not saying all staff is like that. That's not true. There's some people who really work hard to help people in prison or to just do a good professional job, Mm -hmm. which is really all you need to do, in my opinion. But Ryan was targeted just because of his, you know, just because of his notoriety, really. Well, when I went to basic training, um, our basic training was coupled with the training of the COs. So we were all together. Um, The qualifications for the PO position was that you had, you needed to have a bachelor's degree. The COs only needed a high school diploma and you could tell, I mean, you could tell in the training who was there to be a PO and who was there to be a CO. There was, there was, I mean, there was in my basic training, there was racism. We were down in Farmington at training. The COs were saying things like the N word and people got kicked out and people were fighting because they wouldn't let other people sit in certain seats. It was insane. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, and there were people so young. There was one girl. I remember her. She was 19 years old. She she looked like a teenager and she was going to be a CO. And mm. I mean, it was frightening. Yeah, I've seen in a male prison. Kids been. come yes. up to my cell and look into a count. I look, I'm like. What are you doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, what do we got watching this wing? We got a wing of 130, mostly kind of tough guys, and one 65 year old woman and one 19 year old girl watching it. You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I remember that girl specifically was saying when she had her first day at the prison, there was a lot of offenders who would just randomly start like masturbating like in front of her. Oh, and I was yeah. like, that's yeah, great. That's yeah. Yeah. That wasn't, I was like, how are you going to, deal with that and she was just like i'm ready i'm like all right so uh, being down in ad seg I, I did a year in the hole i did a couple three months you did a year in the hole yeah sadly enough oh, wow. but, uh, they said that was one of the times i was targeted as dave was saying i um i did a lot of research in college about solitary confinement so that intrigues me. what were your findings i'd be very very interested because it's, it's extremely a, detrimental it is oh it's extremely detrimental one of the guys the guy that we interviewed before you this time todd uh, he did he was 19 when he went in caught his real case his main case in prison with an assault on staff mm-hmm. and did from 19 to about 25 years old in the hole that's insane you know? oh my goodness that's- three years straight yeah, three years straight in a room. And then a bunch in of one room. room. Three years what straight. What is he like now? The smartest guy you ever met, really. He did everything in my house. He replaced mm-hmm. two stacks. He did my everything, built yeah. steps. I'm like, Todd, you were in prison 20 years. How do you know all this stuff? He's mm-hmm. 
I looked it on YouTube. Good for him. <laughs> I mean, I, and other stuff. I mean, he's just a very intelligent man, really. I it was mean, good to hear he's doing well. And he yeah, did work he on himself a lot. He's over working on my mom's house now. That's awesome. He was in the yeah. program as well. He was my facilitator for a while. The ITC. Exactly. Which, Ziad, I think that goes to your point. Like, you're a professional. You've seen these things firsthand. You see public, I guess, the public support for it isn't there, but you've seen that this actually works. When you provide resources to help people and different programs, it really changes people's lives, right? It does. It absolutely does. So we need like a call to action. Like, I'm glad that we get to talk to you and hear your perspective because you have. I mean, you have more knowledge on this than anybody I've spoken with. And that's what the public needs to hear. Like people need resources. These, these individuals are coming out into the world, whether you like it or not. And we can 90% either choose of to the help people them. in Missouri prisons are going to get out. Right. right. And that's so true. how are we not helping them and changing their lives? Because they're going to be part of the society. Well, I feel like they don't want to use a lot of the resources they have. Now, back in the 70s and the 60s, if you got in trouble as a young man, you had an option, join the service. That's a great option. That teaches you structure. That teaches you self-respect. You can earn things. You start at the bottom, you work your way out of it. You know, now with the mandatory sentences and stuff, you go into prison, you start at the bottom, we promise you're going to stay there until we let you out, you know. but I think and then when we able, let you out, we're not going to give you any right. opportunities or resources non, to be successful. <laughs> if you're a nonviolent offender and you get in trouble between the ages of 16 and 32, well, you should have to go through a kind of an ITC boot camp type thing. And if you successfully complete it, you're allowed to join the army and go through that. You know, absolutely. If you successfully complete your stay in the army, then your your record would be. Expunged, you know. I think. Do you think that would be a good thing, Ziada? Sure, I I think (laughs) I think it I think anything other than what we're doing now would be a good thing. Well, to walk out in the wing like myself, and I was in my forties in prison, and to see twenty-two year old kids sitting around not doing anything, gambling all day, playing prison games all day, smoking dope all day, and nobody gives a shit that they don't work or go to school or do anything. Why? Why? Why would you let a 22 year old kid sit here and not do anything except learn how to be a nastier criminal? Yes. It just used to drive me out of my mind. Yes, you know? absolutely. I used to wonder the same thing when I would get parolees. I would look at their record in prison and see that they had several conduct violations. Absolutely no programming. It was just I just I mean, I knew what, what their trajectory was when they got out. I knew what was going to happen. Well, there's not putting in a position where it's encouraged, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's discouraged a lot, you know, and unless, is it really, yeah, it's discouraged, especially among their peers, you know, right now, some of them gravitate towards some of the older mm-hmm. guys like myself and we take them under our wing and then, then they start doing the things they need to do and they grow up and I hear from them on Facebook and stuff all the time, thanking me for the help I gave them when I was in prison. Cause I took a lot of my time in prison trying to help the younger guys, you know, out, you know, mm-hmm. And that was what was good about that program. It had a community where you could help people and it was a safe place for people who wanted to become better. And like you said, those, that peer environment over there was good as long as you could make it over there. You know, it was, it was tough. It was tough for me to choose to go to, to that environment because from your peers, you know, I, I was, I had a good reputation. People didn't mess with me and, uh, I was, I was pretty tough and, 
you know, when I went to the program, people were like, why are you going to go to the program, man? That's weak. That's, you know, mm-hmm. you're, a, you know, the, all types it, of words. It's always going to yeah. be difficult for probation <laughs> and parole or a DOC to keep good staff when they don't pay any money. There's no money for it. I mean, you go through college yeah. and you pay all this money, go through college and you owe money and you get out and you take a job, you know, that pays a little bit more than what now you can almost make at IHOP up here. I mean, you could definitely you know? make the wage that I had at IHOP or Target or right. Aldi or really? any of your local. Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, I had I had probationers and parolees that were making like three times the money that I was. And I was like, cool, man. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> Great. Great. Now counsel me. Well, it'd be, it'd be right. <laughs> Tell me how to do that. Well, it was that was one of the things. You're not being paid well. You're not being valued by the public. You get phone calls from family members of people who don't think you're doing jack shit for their family member, but you're busting your behind trying to help this person. Yeah. The public doesn't know what we do. I'm not sure what they think we do, but I don't think they know what we do. Um, and there's sometimes, you know, they'll come out and say that, or being too lenient on on offenders, and um, but you can't just have people come out of prison or get on probation and just be a hard ass on them and break them down every single day. Well, that does not work. And they run. Yeah, there's nothing and more dangerous than a person on the run. Absolutely. And then, like I think we were talking about this uh, probably before before we started the interview, but you were saying that sometimes people get sent back almost immediately for, for relatively little, like, you know, one small drug violation, then they go back to prison. They don't really have an opportunity and they're, you know, they're addicts and they need to be worked with. They need help. And then just sending them back, it can be very detrimental to them. And, and can you speak more on that and kind of the difference between if you're on probation or parole in a city versus a rural area? Sure. So it typically just matters with probation because the parole cases, the board controls those. Um, and the board is obviously just one entity of five or however many right. people. Okay. Um, so the probation cases, the rural counties are much more strict um, when it comes to violations, even minor things like citations for just one, you know, positive drug test or, Gosh, moving without saying moving without saying where you're going or, you know, being pulled over and having another felon in your car, um, which is what we call association or losing your job. If they get, you know, anything, they'll issue a warrant and we'll have to have the person arrested in our office. And it's like, I'm sorry, man. Like, I I'll I'll go to bat for you. I'll go to court and I'll I'll try to talk them out of sending you to prison. And those are really the unfortunate cases. Um, where you feel like you're supposed to be a team with the courts, but then you're having to make all these arguments where they don't essentially trust your judgment initially, where you're telling them this person does not need to go to prison. This person made a mistake. They're doing all these other things to better their life. They don't need to go to prison. And you've got to, you know, create such a solid argument for that when it should be just take my word for it. I'm the professional. I know what I'm doing. This person right. is doing fine essentially they made a mistake and pe- which people do all the time that's amazing they don't take your recommendation necessarily when like who would know better 
you know, right. you have contact well, lens for Most of the time they do. It's just these out counties sometimes. Oh, okay. I've driven two and a half hours to go to a court hearing where somebody, where I needed to be there to, to fight for my client. And it really sucks, man, to be in this position where you're being paid such a low wage to be driving two and a half hours to go and make a case for this person who you know better than the judge does, than the prosecutor does, than anybody there does. It sounds like you really cared about the people that you were working with. Uh, do you feel like that was true with your profession? Do most people feel like you do or is, or some people no. just kind of? No, no. I, I don't feel that way. And I hate, I mean, no, I don't hate to talk poorly about it. I don't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be talked about, right? I mean, it really does. Reality. Well, so the newer staff, the people that are fresh out of college, the people who this is their first job in the criminal justice field, they are, they have more empathy. They treat people with decency and respect. Um, it's the people who have been there. And this is kind of the reason why I left. Um, I saw the people that had been there for decades um, and they were burnt. Out, they were burned out and Pretty jaded bunch. miserable. And right, right. they just did not care about the people that they were supervising anymore. And I did not want to become one of them. So that's kind of why I left as I, I didn't want to become burnt out and miserable in just generally my entire life um, and not just my job. I feel like positions like that have a way of losing the good people it because do. of things like that. Yeah, they definitely do. And it's unfortunate. I think if I had been more valued as, you know, just an employee in, in this organization and I also want to do other things with my life, I can't just blame it on that. I'm changing fields completely and going back to school. But well, congratulations on that. Though. Thank Seriously, you. That's awesome. I'm very excited. Thank you. Oh, another thing I was going to talk about is um, just how how people that are on parole when they're released, they don't really they, they don't have like health insurance or any type of like health stuff. They get they have so many problems. I mean, I haven't met anybody who was released from prison and didn't have like one medical issue that needed to be addressed. There was one guy that ended up having to have his hip replaced in prison. It was the DOC paid. Oh, yeah. um, it was wonderful surgeries. for him. Did you in really? Prison, yeah. This man's hip got infected and then he needed Ooh. to have like another hip replacement. He was completely screwed up um, physically. And yeah, but it sucks that there's just isn't more health care for people who are, you know, justice involved individuals because everybody's got some problems. Yeah. And prisons is a strange thing. The way you do it is extremely important. If you're doing multiple years like I did and like Ryan did, you have to stay active and you can't sit around crying about being in prison all the time. You have to live your life where you're at. I mean, you have to live your life where you're at, make the best of it and find joy in your surroundings. You know, whatever it is, it's not going to be the same. You need to forget about that. You're not doing six months. You're doing a big bunch of time. You know, I did 15 myself. Ryan did a little over 10. And you just have to live and find your joy in there and be healthy. So getting on that uh, schedule and on that routine and the working out and reading and studying and doing programs, that stuff keeps you healthy and young. Because usually when I tell people I'm 50, and I don't think I look that young, but they weren't aware that I'm yeah, 50 I'm, years I'm surprised old. you're 50. You know, most of them think I'm up to 23, 24. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far, but I didn't think you were. I did <laughs> I mean, not if you think just you came on 50. the show to be hurtful, you know. <laughs> 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 I 
Maybe you got that tooth, Dave. I mean, maybe, when know. I get the tooth, <laughs> get the tooth. <laughs> I'm going to shine. It's like 10 years you're less. Like, you're you're going to come in the there 20s. and you're like, are you Dave's little brother? I'm like, <laughs> Still me. That's a beautiful tooth, sir. <laughs> Can't wait. Um, you guys are a really good team. Yeah, we're buddies. Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. I, uh, He's a I felt guy. that Dave would be a great <laughs> partner in this pursuit. And he, I think, felt the same way, right? I don't know. He just makes fun of me all the time. I don't know. We just have an easy rapport, and it's all about having an easy rapport. Mm -hmm. You know, rapport is very good. Yeah, we. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we we knew each other. We've known each other for over a decade now, probably since over a decade, like fifteen years. I met your whole family in the the visiting room. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah, the visiting room was a place where uh, man, it's amazing how you get to know people in there. Had I not met Dana, I'm almost sure I'd be your brother-in-law. (laughs) <laughs> you wish <laughs> what was i about to ask shit do you ever think about like going back and being like a little counselor guy well i do want to go back and i do have i've got the invite in now i, I called the warden at uh Moberly correctional center yesterday the warden at uh Mobley is Amanda Lake. Okay. And I'm hoping she'll be on the program next or soon once she can get it cleared because I'll have to go to the prison to do mm-hmm. it. And I have to get cleared to go into the prison because I'm on parole. And I have been in the I did seven and a half years in that prison. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of the program stuff with her there. And so I want to talk to her about, you know, the effectiveness of the programs, like we said before, and the, and the programs as a management tool. Because with less staff, when you have programs going on, you you can do it with less staff. You're saying like in the program we were in, there's the pull up system and people's behavior got better for when they were over there voluntarily mm-hmm. and you monitored each other and you handled stuff kind of in house unless, you know, something major was going on. And it, it made life a lot easier for the staff. And I never understood why some of the other staff used to just want to talk about back when it was the bloodiest. Some people love chaos, though. They want to see you suffer, sadly enough. Yeah, they do. Right. Like they want to feel tough about their job and they want, yeah. you know, and they yeah, want to I be. I know a lot of those people. Right. And mm-hmm. they want to be, you know, some of them are very control issue type people yes. and really kind of sick people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of them. I'm saying some people are. Well, it I, it I draws totally that kind of a person, you know, like people who can't be police officers due to their psychological makeup can be. And they take advantage of it. You know? Oh, yeah. where you actually have a lot more power over human beings. You don't have to respect too many of an inmate. They're so understaffed. They literally will take anybody. Anybody. During the peak of COVID, when the whole camp had COVID and everyone was sick, I thought they were going to lose control of the camp. I thought they were were going to lose control. I was nervous. I was almost getting ready to go home. People are talking about Right, tearing yeah. the place down and getting yeah. out, like leaving. I'm like, dude, they're not going to let you. Been running Eventually, out, they would have just been sitting there, there surrounded by fire. You know. Like, I'm not, not going nowhere. Like, I want to go. Oh, <laughs> yeah, hidden under the bed. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I want the camera to see that I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here. in the fetal position, sobbing softly. <laughs> 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 Little please help sign. <laughs> Um, all right, uh, I think one of the really interesting things that we, we talked about, um, before you came on the show was people who were paroled talking about pleading guilty to crimes that they didn't commit because they didn't really feel like they had options. What was that experience like? Yeah. 
So it the first time that somebody told me that they pled guilty to something that they didn't do, it was just kind of shocking. Um, I knew that they weren't lying and, you know, they admitted to all these other things. And then they were like, well, this this case, it was just something I, I just took because I didn't want to fight it or I was scared to fight it. That was just disheartening because when you go into this field, you have so much faith in our institutions and our systems. And then you find out that they're not what you thought they were. There's a lot of corruption and things just don't function like they should in an, in an ideal world. There's a lot of, um, you know, issues. But yeah, that was troubling. And sometimes with the probation cases, people would plead guilty to things that they frankly didn't do. And you would have to get them involved in all this programming and all these things, um, which just wasn't good for them because studies have shown that um, the more programming that you give an offender who is low risk, the worse off they are and the more likely they are to recidivate. Oh, interesting. Um, so that was- Why is that? Did they- Because they just don't need those interventions. And I think that in the programming, they mingle with people who are there oh, for reasons. Um, they need that. to be there. And so they kind of pick up on those criminal behaviors and attitudes. And um, they're just not well Very interesting. Then. Yeah. And they just felt trapped. Did they talk about that process, like the decision process? Because Yes. Like I have looked at people's police reports. I mean, flabbergasted that they pled guilty to these things. No physical evidence, no witnesses, nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And I would just be like, why? Why did you not fight this? Like, what did your attorney tell you? And they're like, I had a public defender. They just told me to, you know, I should plead guilty. It was in my best interest. I mean, it was shocking. Truly it's either take shocking. five or get 30. Yeah. 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 My very first felony that I got convicted of, I didn't do. I didn't do my first one. I did a whole bunch after that, though. But I didn't do the first one. I mean, the first one, I was 19, and I went to a wedding reception with a friend of mine, and we were drinking heavy. And we got there, and it was in, like, a community center type place. And so I was talking to some friends, and I see him go up and leave the building. I'm like, what's he doing? We're together. So I go out to the car and he's looking through somebody's purse and I freaked out because I knew the people were at the wedding reception. I said, hey, you got to take that back in. Yeah, take that back in there right now, you know. So he gets up to take, well, he gets caught taking it back in. Well, I'm waiting for him to come out, but the people caught him taking it back in. Well, the police came, came to my car and I'm like, hey, I don't know anything about it. Well, he had hidden a credit card under mm -hmm. the passenger seat. Mm -hmm. So they charged me with possession of a stolen credit device. Well, I was young and I was kind of a wild guy back then. I paid a lawyer at first and I ran out of money because I wasn't doing my job anymore and stuff. I ended up running off to California, was out there for a year and a half doing real well and got arrested and flown back to St. Louis. And then they lost my case. And I sat there and it was four days before Christmas and I was trying to fight it. And they said, they called me down there and said, hey, plead guilty today and go home with time served mm -hmm. or fight it for another six months and possibly get five years. I saw that so much where people would just said, be well, like, I want to go home. I just want yeah, to go home. I just want to go home. I was a kid. And uh, yeah, it was a pretty disheartening situation. And kind of came back to haunt me later too, you know, when I did actually get in trouble and right. did actually get addicted so to drugs. This, yeah. I already had a record right. and, and it snowballed on me, mm -hmm. you know, and started making me feel hopeless, you know, like there's no way you're ever going to do anything now, you know. So, yeah, it's a bad situation. When it's they, also difficult for, for people who, you know, work in, in the justice system 
to have. So for example, I, as a probation officer had a hard time sometimes getting the trust of, of these offenders who had really bad circumstances um, and interactions with other professionals. I say professionals, but they're not um, that work in the system. They plead guilty to things that they didn't do. Then they come to me. They don't trust me for shit because they think that I'm just trying to, it does make sense. And I mean, honestly, when I was leaving and telling my offenders, they were, they were distraught because so many of them, especially the parolees have had, um, POs in the past who they think just wanted to send them to prison. And that was just it. And I would tell them, you're going to get this PO. And they'd be like, they're just going to send me to prison. And I'm like, no, they're not. You're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. But so many people just have that trauma of dealing with people who are burned out and miserable and they want to make others miserable. There are people like that too. You know, I mean, there are people that just mm-hmm. look at your stuff and be like, that's it. But you know, that. It's funny, Ryan and I were at the exact same place doing pretty much the exact same things for 10 years, <clears throat> excuse me, but we have different experiences because his experience is different. Like I come in, I'm basically deserving everything I got, you know what I mean? For sure. And Ryan came in, not guilty at all. I used to think, and I used to tell him, it's so much easier to be guilty. You know, <laughs> it's so much easier. Like yeah. I knew the I day I came in, what day I was going home, even though it was way up in the future, I had an exact mandatory release date. From the day I went in, I couldn't work it off. I couldn't do good things and get a lesser bid. So everything I did was just to do. But Ryan's there, didn't do anything. And I and I have experience with criminals. I grew up with guys in the system. So I get I know people, you know, and I know how things work. But here comes this kid. He doesn't know anybody. He's no criminal record. As soon as I heard his story and they said he did a robbery murder and had never, ever been in trouble before, that's pretty unlikely. Yeah. You know, <laughs> most people don't graduate to robbery murder from no trouble at all. Yeah. You know, most people have been in trouble. These patterns have shown kind of like me personally, really. I patterned, mm-hmm. you know, it was a pattern, you know, that needed to be broken in my own life. But without that pattern, it's rare for somebody to just decide. Ah, let's go rob and murder a guy. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, fortunately, the facts were able to come out. Uh, but you're right. The One of the things that was so troubling to me was being around a bunch of people that they all know each other in all the same world, in a sense, uh, and that, that interaction. And then, like, I'm, I'm not part of that world. I don't know how to interact in that world. I've never been in the criminal world. I don't know. <laughs> so that was tough. And then not, not knowing, you know, I, I thought I might do 40 years. I might do five years. I, I have no idea. And, it was uh, rough. Cause I was with Ryan when he got his appeals finally completely denied. Like, and it mm-hmm. was looked like the end, mm-hmm. you know, before uh, your lawyer from Chicago, I don't remember her name, but Zellman. Kathleen. Yeah. yeah. Before she came in, it looked like a closed book. It looked done, you know, yeah, it started to feel that way. Yeah, it was a pretty rough time. I Gosh, remember. watching Dream Killer and seeing how badly Boone County tried to, you know, hold up their verdict, and it was just disgusting. Yeah, it's sad. Wow, and that's it what they do every everywhere. Day. Yeah. How oh, hard yeah. is it to say I mean, I made a mistake this time? Yeah. Right. You said it with money, but why won't you just say it? Right. You know, just say, yeah. okay, this was poor. I mean, I've had to say in my life, <laughs> this is a lot of poor judgment. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and like. Coming out, me, myself, it's like, I don't feel like people have to trust me. I don't feel hurt feelings if people are a little nervous about my 
past and stuff. Because it's my responsibility to prove to you that I'm a trustworthy person. It's not your responsibility to trust me openly, mm-hmm. knowing about this past, you know. And that's I think it's unre- I think a lot of inmates and a lot of people who have done crime have an unrealistic expectation. Like if my sister told me, oh yeah, this guy's coming straight from prison and moving in my house. We're thinking about getting married. But like, I don't think so. You know, I bet not, (laughs) you know, but that's exactly what happened here. You know, for me now, after people met me and now they know me, of course I'm great. So they love me, you know, but I never felt, you know, I understood that people would not like it, you know. You, you know, know that's something you're going to have to deal with. You're and have to you deal acknowledge with it, it, you know, and, you and because work through it, yeah. I mean, you have to look at it from your own point of view. You know, I mean, who would you trust? A guy? Would you trust you if you just met you? Like, no, probably not. You're you know? making me think of all the parolees that I ever had who were just really nice guys, and you know, got out of prison, did like ten plus years, and um, literally living in people's basements and stuff and just trying to make a fresh start. <laughs> and people would think that they were like scary and bank robbers and, right. you know. Well, that's like when I was telling you to come over here, I, I was like, man. No, I'm, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm used to. Right. But I mean, even asking though, people. I always try to think of the other person's point of view and yeah. make sure that they're not going to come yeah. over here feeling uncomfortable yeah, no. or anything. Bulletproof vest in the trunk, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> then I was like, maybe she'll want to look in the closet. Then she'll see all that stuff. <laughs> Why, how do I keep the boundaries up? I don't know. It, it could be what tough. What stuff do you have in your closet? Well, see, that's not, see, this is neck. This isn't that <laughs> Don't show. open the closet. Dawn <laughs> needs to come over here and look in your closet. Oh my gosh. Also, she's going to see us a lot of Cole's clothing, you know what I mean? No big famous black clothing. <laughs> yeah. Cole's target. Polo shirts and yeah. khakis. Right. Jake from State Farm over Actually, here. I got about a nine pairs of work pants and nine tow truck company shirts. That's, oh, that's wow. what I do. I drive mm. a tow truck. Oh, nice. Good yeah. for you. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. I like that it. is very cool. So, Ziada, I always like to ask because you're the professional, you know more about this than anyone else. What would you like to leave the public? knowing or thinking about uh, with your profession or what needs to happen, what needs to change, what's good, what, what's something that we haven't asked that you just think is interesting? I think just to reiterate the point that there needs to be more public support for rehabilitation for people who are justice involved. I think that's just a huge um, point that I'd like to make is that 90% of the people in prison will be released. Um, people that are on probation are among us. Um, it doesn't say criminal on their forehead. We can't just lock them up and throw away the key. That's not how this works. Um, we need to create resources and be supportive of those resources and be supportive of people changing their lives and um, believing in change and believing in the fact that people do change. Um, they change, you know, every day. Um I just think there needs to be more public support for that. That's awesome. What a great message. It's so informative. I don't, I really do feel like I'm leaving this interview a better person, more knowledgeable. And I really appreciate you joining us. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really excited for the public to hear what you have to say. Cause I think it's, it's good for our communities. It's good for everyone. Thank you guys for having me. Well, thanks for coming. You know, we might uh, have to call you again as an advisor, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Bring you back in. No, you're great. We'll definitely uh, definitely talk and hopefully do a, a Facebook Live. I'm sure people are going to want to ask you a lot of questions. Uh, I mean, you just got so much insight and uh, and you're very good at verbalizing it. So 
Thank I think you. people people probably want to hear more for you. I, I certainly do. Absolutely, as we expand the platform a little bit of ours. Definitely. All right. Oh. Well, thank you so much, Ziada. <laughs> wow, what an enlightening episode, uh, Ziada! <laughs> what a great person. It's it's interesting to see somebody who cares so much, but there's just not the resources to keep people like that around. I mean, she did they what they didn't pay her anything, so of course they're going to move on to other things. Well, and that's really. That's a big part of the problem with corrections and with probation and parole. You know, the, the pay isn't competitive anymore with the corporate world. You know, people with degrees who want to do good, it's very difficult when you keep getting your hands tied, like she talked about, and, you know, roadblocks put up in front of you to try to help others. And I think a lot of times people who join these fields for the correct reason either get disillusioned or burnt out, you know, and that's, that's a shame because, you know, when that, when that, that system's not working, it affects everyone. You know, I've been on probation and parole since I was about 18 on and off. I mean, pretty much most of my adult life, either one form or another. So I've had a lot of dealings with them, not that many really negative dealings with probation and parole officers. I mean, in my experience, but I know others who have. Well, you've been lucky. You've had uh, the good ones like Ziada, the people who are still um, caring and not uh, not kind of burnt out on it. And uh, and the good thing is there are a lot of those people um, and a lot of people who choose to do it for a long time because they know they're helping people, even though they're being underpaid. Well, and that's true. And, you know, it's it's almost like when we talked about with Pat a few weeks ago, the discrepancies in time, there's a discrepancy in in the parole system. If you're in on probation or parole and we're like where I am in a a large city, you know, a big city where they have a big caseload. Well, you, you don't have to jump through as many hoops. That's just the truth. But if you're in a rural town and you're one of a few people, well, you're under the gun, you know, constantly. I mean, I've seen people get violated for not being home long enough and things like that or losing their job or something, which is supposed to be violations. But a lot of times in the city or the more urban areas that that doesn't apply as much. Right. It's tough. It's tough. But look, we're uh, running out of time on this episode. So that was uh, that was awesome. And we really appreciate everyone who's listening. Thanks for uh, spreading the word about this podcast. We think it's really important. Share it with one person and uh, and you're probably helping change the world for to make it a better place. Follow me on Instagram. I'm life after 10. Um, I'm also on Facebook. You can find me. Dave, where do we find you? Find me on Instagram at Dave Dowling five two six one one one. You can friend or follow me on Facebook. See all about my super exciting life. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, uh, cool, man. Let's keep this conversation going. Reach out to us. Let us know what you like, don't like. Leave a review, uh, five star of this podcast. That'd be amazing. We appreciate you, and we'll see you at the same time next week. See you at count time.